Judges chapter 6. We're going to be picking up the great story of this fellow named Gideon that we, that we began to dive in and look at uh, last, last week. His story is told in three chapters in the book of Judges, from Judges 6 to 8. And uh, we're going to continue on finding out about the story of Gideon. So let's uh, pray as we turn to God's word. Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to come and spend time with you, Jesus. Jesus, truly, when we flip open the Bible, the, the idea, the picture of what's behind that is sitting at your feet, having you speak to us, having you teach us, having you counsel us, having you uh, strengthen and encourage and share your love with us and direct us and lead us away from sin and towards yourselves. And, and so, Jesus, we... Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to spend this time with you this morning. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit as we spend time in the word of God and that this written word, the living word, would, the written word would lead us to the living word, King Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for your Bible, for the word of God, the Bible, that it is a living word. It's sharp. It's active. It divides uh, flesh from spirit, and Lord, we pray that you'd bring forth the work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet. Okay, so we're in Judges chapter 6, and like I uh, just mentioned there, last week we were introduced to Gideon, one of the major characters of the book of Judges, and uh, We've been watching as we've been going through the book of Judges and are going to continue to do so, this cycle, this repeated pattern amongst the people of God, the children of Israel that, that continues time after time throughout the book. And, and how it works is this, is that God's people would turn to a life of idolatry. They would turn from s serving the living God and turn to worship the idols of the nations around them, the idol gods, and the Lord the living God would hand them over to their enemies. He would sell them. That's what the scripture says, that they would be sold into the hands of their enemies and they would come under the oppressive power, the oppressive hand of some enemy of God's people. And uh, as we are in this story here, as we come to the story of Gideon, we see this, that this thus far is the most oppressive power that has ever come against the people of God. It's the hand of the Midianites who had basically reduced, not basically, they had reduced the people of Israel to living in dens and caves on the mountainsides. I mean, it was oppressive. It was brutal. They were, you know, fighting just for survival until they called out to the Lord and the Lord would raise up like he had in the past, a judge to deliver them from this oppressive enemy. And this time, God sets his hand upon a man by the name of Gideon. And when we were in Judges chapter 6, just to bring us up to speed and remind you, remind you where we were last week, when Gideon was, uh, when we met Gideon, he was hiding in a wine press. And in that wine press, he was threshing wheat, which would not have been a good experience as he's like, tossing that wheat in the air and separating the chaff uh, from the kernels and just covered in dust and in hiding for fear of the enemy. And the Lord uh, called him. He had an encounter with the Lord. He had an encounter with the angel of the Lord and God had instructed him to, first of all, before he would ever lead God's people in victory against their enemy, 
to deal with the idolatry in his own home. And it's a great part of this story because, see, when God calls us, when he uh, begins to work in our hearts and lives, he asks us to deal with the stuff that's in our own homes before we can move on to greater and more important things. And so Gideon was called to destroy the altar of Baal, to tear down the Asherah pole that stood at his father's house, and he was obedient. He destroyed those idolatrous structures and the worship practices that were involved with such things, and he infuriated the men of his town. In fact, when he did these things, the men of his town actually wanted to kill him. But the text tells us that God instead clothed Gideon with the Holy Spirit. He was clothed with the power of God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. He called those same men who wanted to kill him to follow him in battle against the enemy. And it's amazing that he, he pulls together this great army of 32,000. Now, it's not going to be on your screen, but if you got your Bibles, you can just look at, at Judges chapter 6, verse 34. It says this, uh, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I love that. The Spirit of the Lord clothed him. That was the transforming factor of his life, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. See, for Gideon, there's no way he could step into leading God's people and assume leadership without a personal experience with the Holy Spirit to be empowered by the Spirit of God. This was divine enablement for that to which he had been called. And it wasn't, it's actually interesting as we read this, it wasn't actually that Gideon put on the Holy Spirit like clothing. Something's actually lost in translation here from Hebrew to English. It actually means this, that the Holy Spirit put on Gideon. Isn't that amazing to think about that? The Holy Spirit put on Gideon. It was like the Holy Spirit put on Gideon like you would put on a suit of clothes. Just like you would dress up for some special occasion. Some special event like, like a wedding or a graduation or whatever it might be. The Holy Spirit put on Gideon. And Gideon would be the clothing which God would use to, uh, uh, the, that God was going to use to deliver his people. He was going to be the instrument in the hand of the Lord. And so anything Gideon was going to do for the Lord would only happen, would only be, be capable because of the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart and in his life. And you know what's so awesome? Is that the Bible tells us that this same power is available for everyone who follows Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit. The power promised to the church in the book of Acts. Jesus said to the church, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be baptized in the Spirit and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And that math equation has never changed for the church. We need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Empowered, divine, divinely enabled to get the job done. And so this is why, as the Holy Spirit clothes himself with Gideon, when Gideon picks up the trumpet and he blows the trumpet, man, there's one day there's a trumpet sound. That's coming, church. 
The trumpet is going to sound and Jesus is going to call us to himself. But Gideon here in the story, he blew the trumpet empowered by the Spirit and an army came and gathered to him. 32,000 men. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 36. It says this. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only and on the ground there was dew. Now this is a a cool part of this story Gideon laying out the fleece. You know, Christians love that term. Well, I'm just laying out the fleece, you know. Seeking direction from the Lord. I'm putting out my fleeces. You know, you hear people say that in in church circles and Christian circles. Putting out the fleece is kind of like saying, you know, I'm asking God to give me direction with regards to this or that in my life, this or that situation. You know, it's like you pull into the parking lot and you say, Lord, I ask you, I'm putting out the fleece to provide me with a parking spot if I'm going to go into this busy mall and get groceries. And so then we say, well, okay, then, then the Lord opens up a spot and we say, oh, yes, it's God's will for me to head into the store and buy groceries. I just think, you know, or we say something like, you know, Lord, if I check the bank balance today and it's higher than this level, then, then I'm putting out the fleece. I'm trusting you that you're giving me direction to go ahead and make this purchase. Or Lord, you know, I look, I look outside today and I watch from the window and right now in the next 60 seconds, if a car comes around the corner and it's red, then I will know that you are directing me to go in this direction. And then a car comes around the corner, the only problem is it's black, it's not red. And we negotiate. Well, we say, well, it was half right, you know. I think the Lord is leading in this direction or that direction. And you know, it's interesting, I think that all too often, church, listen to me, I think that the church puts out the fleece and it's nothing short of religious superstition, actually. That it could just be superstitious religious behavior. And you know, as followers of Jesus, we're not to be superstitious people. We're to be people that are led by the Holy Spirit. And Gideon, I would say this to you. I think one of the big mistakes in this story is to often think that Gideon is looking for direction. Church, that was not happening. That was not happening. Gideon already had his marching orders. Gideon had already torn down the altar of Baal and the pole of Asherah at his father's house. Men had already wanted to kill Gideon. The Spirit of God had clothed him. He had blown the trumpet. He had 32,000 men, an army of 32,000 men that had rallied to his side. He wasn't looking for direction. God had told him, you're going to battle against the Midianites. What he was asking for was a clear 
confirmation for the miracle working power of God. Holy Spirit enablement. You see, he was calling, he was being called to do something that was so far beyond himself. He was being called to do something that was so far beyond anything that he would have taken on himself in his flesh, in his own natural inclination. His natural inclination was to hide in a wine press for fear of his own safety, to protect that which was his own. And the Holy Spirit came on him and empowered him. He met the angel of the Lord. Gideon was being led to do something that was beyond any natural inclination, and he already had his marching orders. The call of God was on his life. And that which he was being called to do required supernatural Holy Spirit empowerment. And so Gideon, in putting out the fleece, was asking God, Give me supernatural revelation that you've really empowered me, Lord. You know, remember when, when the Lord came to Gideon, he was threshing wheat while hiding in that wine press. He was hiding. And for him, this is a step of faith. He steps out of the wine press and he does this. He journeys to the mountaintop. We talked about this last week, the, the locations of a wine press in a valley and a threshing floor on a mountaintop. That a wine press could be hidden, but a threshing floor was out in the open for everyone to see, where the wind could move. You know, it's amazing. This man needs the wind of the Spirit on his life. He goes to the threshing floor. This was a step of faith. He's not in hiding anymore. It's all out in the open. And he has already experienced the joy and the trials of being obedient. He has been clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. He has called together an army of 32,000 men. And I like the idea that Gideon is not asking for revelation on how to make a decision. This is not superstition. This is, about, this is a story about how we need God to give us the big picture of who he is and how his spirit is at work in, him, in us and in his people. You know, think about Gideon. Gideon did not have the advantage of flipping open a Bible. Gideon did not have the advantage of a personal relationship with Jesus. Gideon did not have the advantage of looking back in history at the story of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Gideon lived on the other side of the cross. He was not looking back to it. He was looking forward to the advent. He was looking forward to the coming of the Lord's anointed. And Gideon's request was that God would build his faith for the task because there was a big task ahead of him. He needed the Lord to build his faith and God did it and he didn't do it just once. He did it twice for him. It's beautiful. The first time, the fleece is soaked with dew, we read. Enough that when it squeezed out, a bowl full of water came out of that fleece as it was wrung out. And the threshing floor around that fleece was, was bone dry. The second time we read this, the fleece is dry and the threshing floor around that fleece is covered with and wet with dew. And I love this picture that in the Old Testament, 
dew, the coming of dew on the ground, the coming of dew in the morning, was likened, is likened to the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that in Scripture? You know that the Old Testament book of Exodus tells us that manna would form on the dew. It's a manna is bread. It's a beautiful picture of the word of God. Dew, water formed in the morning. It's a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit. And the, 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 the dew and the manna came together. The Spirit and the word of God together. And Gideon is saying to the Lord, he's requesting the Lord, to the Lord, Lord, I need your Spirit to empower me. Before I lead any attempt at conquering the Midianites, I have to be filled with your spirit, Lord. Lord, I lay my life out before you like the fleece, and I'm asking you, saturate me, drench me, clothe me, empower me with the spirit of God. And the text just tells us that the fleece was saturated. And then it happened a second time. Gideon said to the Lord, Lord, what if the fleece is dry? It's like he's saying, Lord, I want the ground around my life to be wet. Don't you want that? We want our own lives saturated with the presence of the Holy Spirit, but we want the ground around our lives saturated with the presence and power and work of the Holy Spirit as well. Lord, I want the work around me to go on in the power of the Spirit. That's what we want. We want. We want the work around us to happen in the power of the Spirit, even when I'm dry. <laughs> That's Gideon. Lord, even when I'm dry, even if the fleece is dry, Lord, even if I fail, Lord, even if I fail, would you cover the ground around me wet with dew with the work of your Spirit so that you'll receive the glory and your work will get done and your will be done and God honored the request of Gideon. He said, yes, Gideon. Yes, Gideon. Gideon, even if you fail, my work will go on, the work of the Spirit. And I love how the Lord accommodates Gideon's request here, how he's gracious to him. He doesn't ball him out. You know, I think a lot of people take a lot of shots at Gideon for putting out the fleece. But the Lord didn't. The Lord accommodated him because the Lord loves to work in the realm of the impossible and to build the faith of his people if it will lead them to obedience. And so we read on in chapter seven what happened with Gideon. It says in verse one, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh. I want to say Morda, whatever, you know, I want to say the, uh, what's the, Mordor, Mordor. <laughs> Every time I read that. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Now this is interesting. I've, I've had the chance to, be at the spring of Herod in the valley of Jezreel in the land of Israel. It's kind of shocking when you go there because it's not as, impre as impressive as you might think, but that spring still flows today. It still flows today. And 
As we read here, we find out this, that the Lord says, Gideon, you've got too many men. This army's too big. Chapter 8 will tell us this, that the Midianites had assembled an army of 135,000 soldiers. Gideon had 32,000 men with them. So a little quick math for you. They're outnumbered four to one, okay? That's the ratio. God's people, the children of Israel, are outnumbered four to one. But the Lord says this to Gideon. Gideon, the odds are too much in your favor. What, Lord? It's four against one. It's four to one. And the Lord says, yeah, those odds are too stacked for you. Those odds are stacked in your favor. And, and I imagine Gideon, Lord, are you joking? Like, seriously? But God knows this. God knows the Lord knows the propensity and the inclination of the human heart to take credit, to take glory, to let pride rise in our own hearts for the things that God has done. And so God says, too many. Let's read on in verse three. He says, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So the Lord says to Gideon, tell your soldiers, if anyone's afraid, if they're freaked out about the battle, tell them they can go home. There's no guilt here. Just go home to your own home. And we read here that two-thirds of the army picks up and leaves. 22,000 men leave him, and now there's an army of 10,000 left. And the odds go from 4 to 1 to 14 to 1. Okay, one man, verse 14. And it says in verse 4, And the Lord said, The people are still too many. I kind of think, come on, Lord, if I was Gideon, this isn't funny anymore. Joke on you, Lord, this isn't funny. I don't, I don't want to play this game. What are you trying to do to us? We're outnumbered 14 to 1. How can you say we have too many? Now let's read on, verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And if and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With 300 men who have lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all, and let all the others go, every man, to his home. So wow, this is crazy. 10,000 men are now reduced to 300. 9,700 men sent home. And you know, it's interesting, you, you read this and, boy, you, you study this text and there's just so many theories and opinions on reasons why the Lord separated these men on this basis. Between those who knelt down and lapped water versus those who got down on all fours and lapped like a, a dog drinking water. You know, some say, you know, those 300, they got down on one knee and they lapped the water and as they did... They were watching for the enemy, watching for the work. They were alert. And these were the, the warriors in the midst. 
Those 9,700 that got down on all fours, lapping water like a dog, like how unacceptable is that? Acting like an unclean mongrel. Maybe that's why God separated them. You know, there are all sorts of ways to try and spiritualize the choice of these men. Here's where I land. I side with those who think that the 300 men didn't get down to lap the water on all fours because they were probably too fat to do so. That's right. They, like, they just had to do it this way because to get down on all fours, they might not ever get up again. Probably too out of shape to assume that position. So they took the easy way. These 300 men, I imagine, were not the most qualified in the 10,000. They were the least qualified. The least. The least of these. Because this battle was not about Israel's glory. It's not about man's glory. It's about God's glory. It's not about man delivering himself. It was about God delivering Israel. And Israel was not to be in the position of boasting that their hand had won the battle. That's us too, church. <laughs> Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not our hand that will deliver us, but the miracle working power of the Holy Spirit and the Bible tells us that God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame uh, the wise and, sorry, the weak things to confound the strong. So it says this in verse 8. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but he retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So here's the number. See, the odds had gone from 4 to 1 to 14 to 1 to 450 to 1. One Israelite man for every 450 of the Midianites. 300 against 135,000. How, how do you like those odds? Would you be willing to bet on that? Play that game? Do you know that those are the same odds that Elijah faced? 450 to 1 when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. See, God likes this math. 450 against 1. Man, are you facing something impossible? Do you feel like the odds are stacked against you? And it almost feels like the odds are stacked against God's people right now in a certain sense, you know, against the church. Maybe we're facing things in our lives. I just want to say to you, look, take heart. God puts us in these positions to remind us of our weakness and our need to be dependent upon him. He puts us in these positions to remind us of our need for the work of the Holy Spirit amongst the people of God. Church, this is why we need to gather and pray in these days. In the impossible situation, God wants to show how strong he is so that he gets all the glory. Well, we read on in verse 9, it says this. That same night, 
The Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number. As the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Wow, it's like, this is quite the description here about the power and the volume and the number of the enemy. And you know, as followers of Jesus, I just think it's amazing, even for Gideon, it's amazing how fear can attach itself to the human heart. It's amazing how fear can rise within our minds and within our hearts. You know, think about Gideon. The Lord says to him, if you're afraid, Gideon, if you're afraid, go do this. You know, Gideon had witnessed the faithfulness of God. Gideon had met the angel of the Lord and lived to tell about it. Gideon had confirmed his calling over and over again. God had never been unfaithful to Gideon. God had never dropped the ball with Gideon. But fear rose in his heart. And God didn't condemn him. He doesn't condemn us in our fears. Church, we're not condemned in our fears by the Lord. Instead, to our fears, God says to you, let me remind you of my faithfulness. Let me remind you of my steadfast love. Let me remind you of my character as I call you to this act of courage and obedience. Now it says this in verse 13. When Gideon came, Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given Midian. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now the first thing when I read that is I wonder if the Midianites were like ancestors of the Russians because they called one another comrade, comrade. <laughs> Here's Gideon and his servant Purah. They go down into the camp of the enemy and they listen to the conversation. God leads them sovereignly by his hand of grace to any tent that they could wind up to hear what the enemy is saying. And God leads them to a tent where the enemy is inside that tent and one soldier is sharing his dream to another soldier. And Gideon, a man who just like days beforehand was hiding in a wine press for fear of the enemy discovers this, that the enemy is actually afraid of him. I love that. The Midianites are actually afraid of Gideon. You know the things that you fear? The things that you fear actually fear you when you follow Christ Jesus. 
They fear you when you're following Christ. You know, the angel of the Lord had called Gideon a man of valor, a mighty warrior, and now we find out that that's exactly what the enemy thought of Gideon. Did you hear? Gideon went to his father's house. This is the enemy. Gideon went to his father's house and he tore down the altar of Baal. And all the men in his town wanted to kill him. And now they're ready to follow him into battle. What's happened? The word has spread that this man is a mighty warrior, a man of valor amongst the people of God. And you know, I think about this, you know, as I was studying this, I just was thinking about that picture in my mind. I almost wanted to look for an illustration of this and just put it up on the screen for you, but I'll try and describe that picture in my mind of a young man or woman standing before the enemy and the enemy cowering in their midst because unbeknownst to that young man or woman behind them, they are standing in the shadow of a mighty lion. Oh. And the enemy is looking at them, but behind them, the enemy sees that there is a lion protecting them. They're standing in that shadow. And that young man or woman is standing in the shadow and in the presence of someone who is much stronger than the enemy. In church, we stand in the presence of Jesus. We are those empowered by the Spirit of God. Empowered to be witnesses for Christ Jesus. And often, our enemy, the devil, the best he can do is make you think that you're all alone. That you should fear. That you should fear because you're all alone. But we have been given the name of Jesus. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. We have been purchased with the blood of a Savior. We stand in the presence of a mighty lion. And in the presence of our Savior, who said that he would never leave us nor forsake us, the enemy cowers. You know, if you're being attacked, feel like you're being harassed by the enemy, even persecuted, I would just tell you rejoice because you stand in the presence of your Savior. You know, it's when those things are not happening, when we're not experiencing trials and persecutions and attacks and harassment that we should be fearful. <laughs> you know, Timothy said, or, or Paul said to Timothy this, that all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The key there is this, is that it's got to be a godly life in Christ Jesus. You know, not all followers of Jesus live godly lives. They live carnal lives, live fleshly lives. They mix with this world the things of the kingdom of God and the things of this world, and they live a life of compromise. That's not a life of pers persecution, <laughs> suffering. That's a life of compromise. Paul said this, if you live a godly life, if you live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. Now let's read on at verse 15. 
As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Man, arise. If I was just to go back to the dream, you know, I love the dream because notice in the dream, it's not like a giant. It's not a lion coming into camp. It's not a giant strolling into the camp of the Midianites. It's not a large boulder rolling down the hillside, crushing the tents of the enemy. It's not, a mighty, it's not even a mighty hand coming down from heaven, squashing the enemy. It's a cake of barley bread tumbling into the camp, which is ridiculous. Whoever heard of such a thing? Loaves of bread rolling into a camp and defeating the enemy. You know, in that culture, barley was like stock feed. It's like pink salmon for us in our culture, right? It's like pink salmon is dog food. You make cat food with pink salmon, man. We like sockeye, okay? Same thing. Barley bread is stock feed. It is the food of slaves. It's the least valued grain. But it was a loaf of barley bread that rolled into that camp and defeated the enemy in the dream. Now Gideon, when he hears that, he doesn't, he doesn't complain to the Lord. Is it really, Lord, barley bread? Is that all I am? Pink salmon? Come on, God. Is that what I am here? Seriously? No, it tells us that he worshiped. That when Gideon heard this dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. He recognized, this is what worship is. Gideon recognized the truth about himself and the truth about the God whom he served. That is what worship ultimately is. See, the greater does not worship the lesser. It's not the superior worshiping the inferior. No, the worshiper is the inferior and he worships that which is greater. This doesn't mean that Gideon didn't have value, just some barley bread. It just was revealing to Gideon the proper view of himself that he needed to have before the living God. And Gideon worshipped because God had chosen him. God chose him. And as he heard this dream, it helped him have a proper view of the God whom he served and who he was. This, this blessing, you know, it's like a blessing of discovering who you are, you know. When you look in the mirror and you go, wow. I don't know how God chose me, but he did. I'm broken. I, 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 got, I got issues, but... But God did. Yeah, I know you're saying, yeah, you got issues. But God chose you. You got issues too. Just let me remind you, you got issues too, okay? And this is the blessing of saying, man, I see myself in light of who I am, but God, I see you in in light of who you are. And in light of who you are, I worship you. And Gideon, as he heard this dream, it it led him to, to worship and to the confident assurance of victory. Let's go, boys. God has given us the victory. How was his conclusion? Now let's read on here in verse 16. It says, He divided the men into three companies he put, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I 
and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I love this, church. Gideon says this, watch me and follow my lead. Do as I do. (laughs) Do exactly as I do. Paul said the same thing. Paul spoke to the church and he said this, follow me as I follow Christ. Let's go. Let's go. And here's Gideon. He's a man of action. He's a man of faith. (laughs) Hebrews, the book of Hebrews counts him in the hero's hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, these great faith stories. And faith is this. Faith sees the invisible and it does the impossible. So Lord, I trust you. You're calling and what you're going to do and I'm going to go. And I think about Gideon. He's come a long way in a short time. He's come a long way in a short time for a man who just a little while ago was hiding in a wine press And now he's confidently giving orders to the men, knowing that God would give the victory. And it's a funny plan here as we read this. I mean, simple plan. He doesn't hand out swords and spears and shields and helmet and armor. He equips each man with a trumpet, with an empty jar, and a torch that was hidden inside the jar. And he instructs them to surround the enemy on the mountainside, on the hillsides around that valley where they were encamped. And let's read on. Now verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, And in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. And against all the army. And the army uh, fled as far as Beshetah towards Zerah. As far as the border of Abel, Meh, I don't know how to say these things, Babel, Babel, Meholah, by Tabath, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Wow, man, this is like a brilliant plan in its simplicity. Trumpets, the sound of smashing jars, holding up the torches, it just gave this impression of a much larger army. And from the mountain sides down into the valley as they gave the shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, it echoed. But you know what's interesting? We never read that they had swords. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And the enemy turned their swords on one another. You know, it's the middle of the night. Here's the enemy, they're tucked in, you know, their sleeping bag. Those that were on the watch are retiring to their tents. A new watch is limping out of bed, blurry-eyed, and then the trumpets and the smashing of the jars, the shouting, the lights on the hills, and it's chaos in the camp. Normal practice in that culture in terms of war was this, that behind every torch would be a 
thousand soldiers. And so the impression was that Midian was surrounded by an army of 300,000 men, but it wasn't. It was just 300. And the Lord threw the enemy into confusion and chaos, suspicion of everything that moved. Men who lived their lives, their lives by superstition turned on one another. Um, it just makes me think, I'm like nervous in the midst of our culture, those who live by superstition. They're going to turn on one another. But I think there's a good application here. That throughout the scripture, God's work is illustrated in you and I in this way, that, that his work in our lives is as a potter with a jar of clay. You know that if you've kicked around the church for any period of time, you, you know that. The Bible uses that illustration often with the people of God, that he's the potter, we're the clay, and he's shaping us and molding us and making us into a vessel that can be used for his glory. In the New Testament, we read that the treasure of Jesus is hidden in earthen vessels, like that torch inside the jar, you know, inside the clay jar. But the light couldn't shine unless the jars were broken. Unless there was a breaking. And the treasure of Jesus is hidden in earthen vessels, clay jars, your life and my life. In church, it's when we're broken before the Lord. It's when we're broken before the Lord that the light of Jesus, the light of the world, shines forth from our lives and we shine for the kingdom of God. And when that happens, the enemy flees. Darkness is driven back with just a little light. Confusion in the camp of the enemy. Defeat for the enemy when God's people are broken enough to let the light of Jesus Christ shine. And we read on here. Let's read on through to the end of the chapter here. It says this. Gideon sent messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. They captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Those names mean raven and wolf. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb. And they killed Zeb. And, and sorry, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And so here it is, the enemy, as they turn their swords on one another and slay one another, butcher one another, they they, they flee, and the tribes of Israel are, Israel are called out to pursue them. And, and I just read this, and I, you love the irony of the Bible, you know. You know, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he was hiding at a wine press. But when Oreb was killed, where was he? Or sorry, when Zeb was killed, he was killed at the wine press. When Gideon first met the Lord at the wine press, he he put together an offering and he brought it to the Lord and he set it on a rock and it was consumed by fire. Where was Oreb killed? 
This is the irony of the story. So this is full circle. This is a story full circle. He's killed at a rock. The wine press and the rock. This man. Actually, this is the picture of this man. He's come full circle. By no means is he perfect. By no means, but he's obediently stepped out in faith and in courage and in the power of the Spirit. And church, I just want to encourage you in this, that the areas of your life that were once signs of defeat, God wants to work in those areas and turn them into places where you're going to get sweet revenge on the enemy. Sweet revenge. Those areas of life that were once areas of failure and defeat, For Gideon became areas where he experienced the victory of God at the rock and the wine press. That's what the Lord wants to do for us. Those areas of defeat that lead to our brokenness before the Lord, the Lord is at work to make us men and women of faith and action. Mighty men and women of valor for the purposes of God. So that rather than the taste of defeat, we would know the joy of victory, the wonder of worship, the pleasure of sweet revenge against the enemy. And the enemy, the raven and the wolf were slayed at the winepress and the rock. It makes me think of Jesus. (laughs) Jesus didn't go to a wine press. The New Testament tells us that before he went to the cross, he went to the olive press to Gethsemane. See, that's what Gethsemane means. It means the olive press. And there Jesus was pressed. As the weight of sin and death came upon him, as he experienced the wrath of God, The scripture said that he was pressed and out of him came drops of blood. Pressed in the olive press. And you know what came forth from Jesus, I would say? Oil. His life proved to show the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. He demonstrated himself to be the one upon whom the Spirit of God had descended and from whom would never depart. And Jesus, you know Gideon here, he's a judge, but all of these judges are pointing us to the ultimate judge. The one who will come. God's anointed, the man clothed with the Spirit. And we know Jesus was clothed and empowered with the Spirit. And Jesus, his work of deliverance was different than the work of Gideon. See, Jesus really was broken on the cross. On the cross, he was nailed for the sin of mankind. For your sin, for my sin, for the sin of every man, woman, and child who would ever live. And Jesus was judged. Our judge went to our place where we should have been judged, and he took upon himself the judgment against you and I for sinning against God. He bore it. 
in his body. And the Bible tells us great details about the pain and the suffering that he went through as he was judged by God. He went to that cross, died for your sin and my sin, was buried in a tomb. But three days later, the scripture tells us that he rose from the dead victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over the grave, victorious over our enemy, the devil. If you're watching this morning and uh, you're here with us the first time and you don't know Jesus, I'm so glad you're with us. I want to tell you this. You may not recognize this in your own life, but you have been enslaved to a power that you can't escape from. A power from which you cannot free yourself. You are enslaved to sin. (laughs) Did you know that it's not that you sin, that that you make the choice to sin, but that you have no choice? You're not free. You don't have freedom of choice. Sin is your master. But I want you to know this this morning. Jesus wants to set you free. And sin, it has a punishment that's inherent to it. And the punishment the scripture tells us is this, death. For the wages of sin is death. But the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, when I look around our world, one of the things that I'm shocked by, I'm shocked by it, is the fear of death. I can't believe how the fear of death has come over our culture. I like wonder, I'm like, didn't people realize that they were going to die? Didn't they know that already? Didn't they know that? But these days have made this reality very real. But I'm going to tell you this. In Christ Jesus, you can be set free from the power of death. In Jesus Christ, you can be set free from the power of sin. Jesus wants to give you life abundant and he wants to give you eternal life. But the Bible says this. You have to repent of sin. Repent of serving that master. And you have to turn from sin and you have to turn in faith to Christ Jesus. You repent saying, Jesus, I'm not going to serve sin. And in faith, I'm going to turn to you, Jesus. I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to serve you as Lord. And Jesus says, if you repent of sin, and you turn, into faith, turn to him in faith, that he will forgive you of your sin. See, the punishment of sin is death. But Jesus will forgive you of sin. And not only that, so then you're going to be set free from punishment. He'll give you the gift of eternal life. You spend eternity with him. You can experience that life and that peace today. There's an enemy. And the enemy wants you shaking and quaking in fear. But if you'll turn to Jesus, you can live in his shadow. Live in his presence. And I'll tell you what, the enemy will quake in your presence because you serve Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's pray. Maybe you're watching this morning and you want to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. I want to ask you to do that right now, to pray with me, to pray with me. Let me lead you in prayer. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I turn from serving sin. 
And Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. Jesus, I ask that you would set me free from the punishment of death. Jesus, as I turn from sin, I turn to you. In faith, I believe, Jesus, that you are Lord. I believe, Jesus, that you died in my place. I believe that you were victorious over sin and death. I believe that God raised you from the dead. Jesus, I repent of sin and in faith, I confess Jesus is Lord. Lord, I thank you this morning for the gift of eternal life. I thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. And by faith, we receive. And Lord, I thank you that when we know you, we can walk and live in the power of the Holy Spirit just like Gideon did. Every one of us. So Lord, fill us with the Spirit. Lord, fill us with the Spirit so that our broken lives may shine forth the light of Jesus Christ to the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.